DW, Living Planet. When you think of the world's biggest greenhouse gas emitters, the most monstrous polluters out there, what comes to mind? If you're thinking along the lines of fossil fuel-powered energy, you're correct. That's by far and away the biggest contributor. But there's also another dirty sector that usually flies under the radar. It doesn't make it into most data sets, emissions breakdowns, or even onto the table at international climate negotiations. It's the world's militaries. Mostly shrouded in secrecy, military emissions and pollution are difficult to quantify because the data is difficult to find. But from what researchers can gather, it plays a big, big role in heating up the planet. And if we're to seriously address climate change, militaries will have to be held accountable too. This is Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shields. Less War, Less Warming. That's the title of a study published last week that details the outsized role of the US and UK militaries in the climate crisis. I spoke with the lead authors, Ken Regaley and Patrick Bigger, about what they found out in three years of research, why the US and UK militaries are two of the biggest climate villains, and what their suggestions are for meaningful change. Continuing to dump money into that instead of into genuine, just, transformative decarbonisation and adaptation is going to make insecurity inevitable. Here's our conversation. I'll let my guests introduce themselves to begin with. My name is Dr. Patrick Bigger. I'm the research director at the Climate and Community Project, which is a US-based climate justice think tank, and I'm based in Maryland in the USA. My name's Cameron Gailey. I'm a senior researcher at Commonwealth. We're a think tank working on democratic ownership based in the UK, and I'm based in North London. Kem and Patrick, thank you both so much for joining me on Living Planet. So to start with, I can think of a few reasons for less war, especially at this current moment. But can you tell me why it's important for climate reasons? The Global military sector is a understudied and underappreciated contributor to the climate crisis. The best estimates that we have is that militaries contribute about 5.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions, but they have been purposefully excluded in international climate negotiations going back to the Kyoto Protocol in the 1990s. And then the 2015 Paris Accords made reporting optional. So while there's growing recognition that there needs to really be a a whole of government or whole of society approach to mitigating uh, greenhouse gas emissions, militaries have been a bit of an outlier, but it's high time that we started taking them seriously, especially as global conflict continues to ramp up. And that, Patrick, is one very baffling aspect of this whole story, that emissions from this sector are excluded from international climate agreements. What is the justification for that? 
I think the justification historically is that that is sensitive national security information, because if countries are reporting on their greenhouse gas emissions and there's a rise in a country's military contributions to their total emissions, then that signals something about their, you know, geostrategic outlook. And so it was framed as a matter of national security. That certainly was the case for the U.S., who uh, has long fought for the maintenance of this exemption. But I think it's true elsewhere as well. And is it also the case that military emissions are not included as part of a country's total carbon footprint? It's hard to say. Some do include them, some don't. Uh, There's really no standardization, which makes it very challenging to do a true global inventory of global emissions and understand their space within the kind of entire universe of emissions. And in your calculations, did you also account for the emissions caught up in supplying weapons to other countries as well? So in terms of our calculations of the um, emissions associated with both the UK and the US military, what we are working with is official data that has a lot of deliberate exclusions. And when it comes to kind of seeing that broader scope of military emissions, say from arms exports from the UK or the US to other countries, really because the official data excludes what they call scope three emissions, so from organisations not directly controlled by the US um, or the UK militaries, you can't understand that the impact in full of the military industries that are supplying both the US and the UK and countries across the world. And and that's a really important sort of unaccounted for climate impact um, within this story. Mm -hmm. So it's safe to say that the calculations you have made are conservative. That's right. I think we are fairly comfortable in saying that these are very conservative estimates, both in terms of the aggregate emissions numbers, as well as the monetary damages that we assign to them. So these should be seen as a floor rather than a ceiling to try to understand the extent of ecological damage, both acute in the forms of things like water, air pollution, noise pollution, surrounding overseas bases, but also the more diffuse impacts uh, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And that's to say nothing, of course, of the incredible human cost of the deployment of U.S. and U.K. armaments in conflict zones around the world, thinking about things like depleted uranium in Iraq or the abandonment of toxic burn pits in Afghanistan or the contamination of water supplies in places like Okinawa or Pearl Harbor in Hawaii by uh, so-called forever chemicals, PFASs. Okay, yeah, I was just going to ask where some of the impacts of this ecological damage are most severe. Are those some standout examples? My understanding is that those are the most well-documented, but it's hard to assess their relative, the intensity of the impact, because there's such poor data available across the just astonishing number of bases that the US and UK militaries maintain around the world. You know, the US alone is somewhere in the ballpark of 750 to 800 overseas installations. Nobody really knows, including perhaps the Pentagon. I read that a RAND uh, corporation report that was commissioned by the Pentagon actually relied on research by external researchers rather than Pentagon data to explore the, the kind of base world that the US has created because Pentagon reporting on overseas military installations is so poor. And so we don't really know the extent of the acute environmental impacts 
caused by overseas bases, because oftentimes we don't even know where they are. Did you find anything to suggest that reducing their environmental impact is actually a concern for militaries? Is it something that they're prioritising at all? I think at the moment, the way that these um, militaries, that the US and UK specifically, are presenting themselves is as solutions rather than problems um, to climate crisis. So within the kind of global instability that they predict to be arising from a world affected by climate crisis, they kind of see themselves as harbingers of peace or, or, or security, rather than actually kind of underpinning the system that has produced the, the, the crisis that we're seeing. And I think the problem is that they're, they're, produced, that they're kind of pursuing pathways that aren't viable to address their own emissions. So if you look into what are the kind of the core sources of military emissions, they're, they're predominantly um, things like fighter jets or ships used by navies. And there aren't alternative fuels for these military goods. These are also very expensive systems. When you invest billions into a new fighter jet, you're going to be using that for decades rather than um, replacing it with a kind of a a new system that would would offer a kind of decarbonised approach. So it's really not viable to just decarbonise military operations or military infrastructure as it exists, which is why we think that the kind of approach that's being taken by the UK and US militaries is fundamentally out of line with any serious approach to addressing climate crisis. And, and our perspective would be that the only way to kind of have less warming is, is less war and less military capacity, reduce military operations and, and the closure of military bases overseas. Mm-hmm. So the military see their role more as cleaning up the mess of climate change, so to speak? Yes, in part, they would see themselves as part of the solution, but also that they would see it as viable for military technology to become decarbonised and to become part of a world where military infrastructure is relatively unchanged, military operations continue or even increase in order to deal with any potential um, instability or insecurity they see as resulting from climate crisis, but that they just use different fuels. And if you actually look into what their alternatives are, they don't really exist. That's interesting too, because the acceleration of climate change is then assumed if they see their role mostly as taking care of the fallout. That's exactly right. I mean, I think that it's really telling to understand that for about 15 years, the way that the US military in particular talked about climate change was as a quote-unquote threat multiplier, that climate change wouldn't create new conflicts in and of itself, but it would exacerbate uh, conflicts that were either brewing uh, and, and pushing them to the point where they exploded into overt violence or entrench uh, ongoing conflicts and make them worse. And so this is really emblematic, I think, of a military approach to climate action, given that the the job of militaries fundamentally is to break things and kill people, which is, I think we would agree, at odds with an approach for climate action that hinges on repair and uh, transformation for the better, uh, rather than, than breaking things and killing people, which climate change can do all on its own. So to put the military or militaries in charge of their own climate response is to fundamentally militarize a response to climate change. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people listening might be thinking, okay, so the military contribute 
a lot to emissions and to environmental damage, but that's just kind of the way it has to be because you can't just do away with the military. Security is of utmost importance. How would you respond to that? I think that's right to a certain extent. Uh, We can certainly examine and question the extent to which particularly for the U.S. and U.K., the military interventions these countries have taken over the last 70 or 80 years have genuinely improved human security uh, in the spaces in which they've been intervening or through the uh, deployment of troops across the world and the the so-called lily pad network of bases that span the globe. But one thing that I think is fairly indisputable is that climate change will render vast parts of the world fundamentally less secure. And so turning the question of climate security into one of militarization is sort of a nonsense in the sense that continuing to spend lavishly in the U.S., you know, it's by far the largest chunk of the budget that the government devotes to any discretionary priority. Continuing to dump money into that instead of into genuine just transformative decarbonization and adaptation, not just in the US, but around the world, is going to make insecurity inevitable. And so scaling back military emissions without necessarily disrupting the most important defensive capabilities is not only possible, it's also an absolute imperative. And just to give us a better sense of that, How do the budgets for defence compare to what is spent on climate adaptation and mitigation? It's absolutely staggering, the discrepancy between that allocation of resources. So in the US, for instance, by far the most optimistic estimates of how much um, will be spent through the Inflation Reduction Act, if you're looking at kind of uncapped tax credits being used to their maximum, it would end up as a one-year of the Department of Defence budget being spent across a decade of spending through the Inflation Reduction Act. Likewise, in the UK, while the Labour Party has been sort of seen as one of the two major political parties with the greater ambition for public investment on climate programmes, if you compare its um, its flag- flagship Green Prosperity Plan to how much the Ministry of Defence spends only on contracts and procurement alone, you'll see that the, the, the figures are about the same for climate programmes for the entire economy and contracts for defence companies. It's, it's a really staggering discrepancy. And I think what is important for us to sort of understand beyond that is that it's not just a discrepancy of public investment. It's a discrepancy of technological and industrial capacity that you have in the US and UK, significant military industries, while comparably green industries are, are underinvested and they have a lower sort of level of technological and industrial capacity. And in the UK, what we've had since the 1970s is efforts from workers in arms companies themselves to convert production um, to what they've called more socially useful goods. And even in the 70s, that included heat pumps. So there's real capacity there to use what exists within the military industrial sector and to turn it into production for for other uses um, in green and renewable supply chains. Mm -hmm. And after all this research, do you then advocate that we dismantle militaries? 
So what, what we advocate for is not the dismantling of, of militaries, but rather the scaling back of military operations, because what we recognise is that militaries are not solutions to climate crisis, but rather significant um, contributors to the environmental breakdown that that we're seeing right now. So we, we say that rather than attempting to have a green military, which does not seem technologically viable, rather to have less military scaled back operations um, and the closure of overseas bases, which themselves, as we discussed, contribute to ecological damage. Alongside that, we argue that it's necessary to have remediation programs for communities that have been affected by the the damage caused by overseas bases and military activities. We also um, argue that we need to invest in um, international climate finance um, to compensate for the effects of military emissions. And then finally, and I think importantly, we look to the conversion of capacity within the US and the UK military industrial sectors. So thinking about some of that industrial and technological capacity and to understand where a public ownership can be used to convert it towards um, green and renewable sectors. And just to bring it back to an individual level to end on, I think often when people hear about the scale of emissions from big players like fossil fuel companies and the military, they tend to draw the conclusion that, well, I can't cause much damage in comparison, which is true, but also that by the same token, they can't make much of a difference. Do you think that there's space for individual action here? I think there's there's two elements to this. The, the first is that a kind of a, a key reason to understand the scope of military missions and the ecological damage is that they form the bulk, or at least in the US, a very, very large portion of of public sector emissions as a whole. And then in the UK, they um, form around 40% of public sector emissions. So people can take action as as citizens to campaign in that area because it's something that their governments have direct responsibility for. And then secondly, I think, especially in, in the US and the UK, there are areas where people can look to their trade unions, because if you work in a trade union that represents a wide variety of sectors, there is a, a decent chance, it depends on where you are or where you work, that it might also be representing workers um, connected to military industries. And there's a route there to collaborate with colleagues in your trade union on um, initiatives like these conversion plans to, to sort of move your union's position a- away from just supporting the military industry as is, but rather to kind of building on that powerful history of workers' movements for alternative production in green sectors. It can be incredibly disempowering to look at the size of these institutional emitters and just the sheer inertia that they have for producing climate-changing emissions, as well as the toxic legacies that they leave in their wake in the myriad places that they operate overseas bases. Uh, I think that Kim's point about the importance of worker power can't be understated. Of course, that's probably more straightforward in the UK and other countries that have relatively higher union representation. But in the US, I'd say that the flip side of that is to either join a union or start a union uh, if you're a worker in these sectors, or even if you're not, right? I mean, we see that there are labor actions being taken against the export of military materiel to the Israeli government right now. So there are other ways that you can get involved with limiting the damaging impacts of these industries right now. But, you know, even if, you know, the military isn't your central concern within the broader climate crisis, I think just making 
folks aware of the importance of military emissions within the global ecological crisis is critical and that, you know, if you want to be primarily a climate campaigner, then now is a very valuable time to loop up with global peace and justice movements that have been struggling against the extraordinary amount of spending that goes to the military industries in both these countries. As Naomi Klein said in, in the title of her book, climate change changes everything and it will require us to rethink things like security. Patrick and Kem, thank you so much for joining me today on Living Planet. It's been fascinating speaking to you more about your work. Yep. Thank you so much, Charlie. That was fun. Thank you, Charlie. That was great. Um, Great to meet you. Patrick Bigger from the Climate and Community Project, a climate justice think tank in the United States, and Kem Regaley from Commonwealth, a democratic ownership think tank in the UK, speaking to me there about the role of the US and UK militaries in the climate crisis. Speaking of emissions, as we often find ourselves doing on Living Planet, we do have one more story for you before we go today. This one is about reducing emissions via the ocean by harnessing wave power. It'll all make sense when Lisa Louis explains in this next story out of Portugal. I'm about four kilometres off the coast on a little inflatable speedboat. The waves are quite high and it's going up and down. I must say I'm feeling a little dizzy and just in front of me in the water I can see a yellow buoy. This is not a buoy like any other. Now this 18 metre tall and 9 metre white machine in front of me is to harness the power of the world's largest untapped energy source, the ocean because while it's moving up and down, a converter inside transforms the mechanical energy of the waves into electricity. The buoy is the outcome of more than a decade of development and the first commercial-sized prototype by Swedish company Corpora Ocean that has set up shop in Viana do Castelo. Inspired by the pumping principle of the human heart... It's not the only wave energy machine in the market. Several others are being tested around Europe. But Core Power Ocean CEO Patrick Muller says the company's device has two decisive advantages compared to other existing technologies. We are producing so much more energy for given size of the equipment. So on this 9-metre diameter buoy, we are producing 300 kilowatts. In historical wave devices, you have had thousands of tons of equipment to do that same power. The technology we have introduced here that is just letting big waves pass by in storms and not reacting to them is protecting us in storms. The 30 million euro project was half financed through government and European subsidies and half through equity. Recently connected to the grid, it's a further step towards commercial projects that Corpora Ocean is hoping to develop by the end of 2027. The company's Patrick Muller thinks these projects could not only benefit countries like Portugal with large coastlines. Europe is getting increasingly interconnected, which is a very good thing. So 
in the end, it's also you can say if you if you take wave energy along the entire European coast, you can stabilize a big part of the European energy system. The project is also benefiting the local economy in Viana do Castelo, where Core Power Ocean employs 14 of its 80 staff and counting. My name is Miguel Silva. I'm the managing director of Core Power Ocean in Portugal. 45-year-old Silva had been working abroad in the renewable sector for more than a decade. An environmental uh, controlled uh, space. But he came back for a reason, Silva told me, as he was showing me around the workshop where the next generation of Corpara Ocean's wave energy converter was being manufactured. Portugal has a huge tradition in wave energy, started back in 77, and we have been the showcase for many attentives of projects to prove that wave energy is not only feasible but also bankable. As Denmark was for wind, Portugal could be the birthplace of a new renewable energy source uh, that's called wave energy. It's with enormous pride that we are a part of that effort. The Portuguese government is indeed hoping for a leading position in the wave energy market. Lisbon is aiming to have 10 gigawatts of ocean energy, which also includes offshore wind energy, by 2030. That could meet a fourth of the country's electricity needs, as well as provide economic benefits, as Secretary of State for the Sea, José Maria Costa, told me. These 10 gigawatts of ocean energy will generate an investment of 40 million euros and create between 20 and 30,000 new jobs, mainly in the supply chain. That includes the areas of metalworking, electricity, communication, electronics, shipping and numerous scientific sectors. And yet, getting wave energy ready for the market, here and abroad, might not be that straightforward, says Mara Madaleno, an economist specialised in renewable energies at Aveiro University. It's difficult to finance technologies that are not yet mature. Several wave energy projects have been tested off Portugal since the 1990s, but each one had to be taken out of the water after about two years because there was no money to continue them. That's also down to high maintenance costs. Back off the coast of Viana do Castelo, Corpora Ocean's Patrick Muller is confident that the company can overcome these hurdles. They have already collected 16 million euros in subsidies for the next stage of the project, which will cost a total of 66 million euros. That'll include three additional machines at the test site off the Portuguese coast. The biggest challenge for the world to get to a net zero electricity system is to ensure that there is clean electricity available at all times, uh, every hour of the year, not only when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining, and wave energy is unique in the way that waves always come in. To deliver on that promise, the company is hoping to win the race against wave energy technologies developed elsewhere. Lisa Lui, DW, Viana do Castelo. That report from Lisa Louis out of Portugal brings us to the end of this week's Living Planet. I do actually have one request for you before we go today, though, and that is to please participate in our Living Planet listener survey. 
We would really like to know what you do and don't like about Living Planet as we set out to reimagine the show to make sure it's as informative, enjoyable and listenable as possible. So if you're keen to have your say, and I really hope you are, we'd love to hear from you. So you can either jump on our website, dw.com slash livingplanet, and click on the latest episode to find a link to the survey, or you can follow the survey link posted under our latest episodes on our YouTube channel, which is called DW Podcasts. We would really, really appreciate hearing from you. And you can also always email us at livingplanet at dw.com. Thank you so much. My name is Charlie Shield. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the world. Don't drink the milk. Weird name for a podcast, right? But it will all make sense, I promise. And no, it's not a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. Their arguments of homeopathy are based on, like, sand. And the sand was pouring through my fingers. I'm Rachel Stewart, and for this new podcast from DW, I'm travelling around Europe, tracing the backstories of objects, ideas and movements that you know well. But maybe you never really stopped to think how these things got to you. Condoms are known as French letters in the 19th century. Syphilis is the French disease, but in France it's the Italian disease. Join us to follow the strange journeys of these everyday things and see how they change shape as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance, or by choice. The less appealing the passport seems, the more dodgy stuff is probably going on. And yes, we're picking the juiciest stories, Ones with a little mystery or drama along the way. We've got a lot to explore. Colonialism. Migration. Alternative medicine. Digital revolutions. Actual revolutions. And even some edible or rather drinkable stuff too. Ooh, tangy. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm just gonna-